So as I said, what I'd like to do this morning is, is bring into deeper focus. I've settled on three questions. Shocker that it's number three. It's always three parts, three things. But three questions that I, I hope we would benefit from lingering on a little bit more. And, and here are the three questions. Where is the gospel in the vine metaphor? That's the first question. Where is the gospel metaphor in the, in the vine metaphor? Where is the good news in the vine metaphor? The second question is, what does that question, where the gospel is, have to do with abiding? Where does that, where the gospel is in the vine metaphor, help us understand what abiding is? And the third question is this. What is the connection between Jesus' words, abiding in us, prayer, and fruit bearing? What's the connection between Jesus' words, abiding in us, prayer, and fruit biting? So these are the three questions as I thought about this text over the last several weeks. I just feel this sense of, man, I, I just want us to get this. I just want us to tighten up a little bit more on, on these things in this wonderful, amazing vine metaphor. So the first thing we're going to talk about is, and I'll, and I'll explain why I, I want us to get that. But the first question we're going to look at this morning is, where is the gospel in the vine metaphor? Where is it? This passage is heavy on what we would call imperatives, on things that we're to do. On things that you're told you need to do. Remain in me. Keep my commandments. Keep my words. Remain in my love. Love one another. Ask for anything. It's a lot of you doing a lot of stuff. Right? So, and I think this metaphor and, and these associated imperatives that we've just talked about, to my reading, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and sort of in awe of this This metaphor in this text in John 15 is, I think, it is as close as I can think of to a comprehensive picture of what the Christian life, the whole Christian life, is is to be about. God's word is here. Obedience is here. Prayer is here. Love is here. Fruit is here. All centered in Jesus Christ. It's all here. But it begs the question, you know, we're a gospel-centered church. We've been raised on the gospel. We've been sustained on the gospel. Where's the gospel in this passage? Where is God's foundational work through our faith and the death and resurrection of Jesus present? And I believe it's present, and I believe it matters. I believe it's present, although implicitly, it's present particularly at the very start, at the very foundation of the metaphor. I believe the gospel is embedded in Jesus' meaning in verse 3 when he says, You are already clean by the word I spoke to you. See, when Jesus says you are already clean because of the word I spoke to you, he's using a term logos for word. That's the Greek word he's using. It's called logos. It's the very same word that John 1 uses in the first chapter of this book to speak of Jesus himself as the logos. The eternal word of God. The word of God is with God. And the word of God is God. This word of God represents God's full saving revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. And again and again in John's gospel, this word of God, who is Jesus Christ, is held up as the source and as the center of of eternal life. And that takes place. That eternal life takes place in our hearts. By believing in the word who is Jesus Christ. 
If you go through John's gospel, you see this, I think, in every single chapter. John 1, we believe in Jesus, the Lagos, and we become children of God. John 2, we believe in Jesus because he reveals God's glory to us. The Lagos explains, expresses God's glory to us, who God is. John 3, we believe in Jesus and we do not perish. John 4, we believe in Jesus and we receive eternal, the gift of eternal life. John 5, we believe in Jesus, specifically his Lagos, as mentioned there in John 5. And it's by that Lagos, by our belief in it, that we pass from death to life. In John 6, we believe in Jesus and we never thirst. In John 7, we believe in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit, and so on and so on and so on. It's the, it's the whole point of John's gospel, is to believe in the revealed Lagos, the word of God who is Jesus Christ. So here, when John says in verse 3, you are clean through the Lagos I have spoken to you, I believe it is that message that we put our faith in by which we're saved. To me, there can be no other alternative than to see that Jesus means the promise of eternal life through believing in him, the very Lagos, the very word of God. So he says, you are clean through the Lagos I have brought to you. You've accepted it. You've believed in it. And it has brought you into me. Because he says, that, now remain in me, he says. You're clean. You're already pruned. You're already in me. Now remain in me. So what does this have to do with remaining? This, this gospel issue that I'm saying, here it is. Here it is. Here's, here's where the kernel, the foundation of abiding is. It's in this gospel of believing in Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about what abiding means? Well, here's what I think it tells us. To abide in something is essentially to remain in something. You have come to be in something or else you wouldn't need to remain in it. If you're, if, if you're not in it, you know, no one says remain in it because you're not there yet. First, you have to get into it. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're clean. The word has put you inside me. You are in me. Remain in me. That word was the gospel. Jeremy and Emily got married. Was it last week, last Saturday? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I was there. It was great. Andrew was in the back, tall drink of water. You can't ever get him out of the wedding pictures. He's just like over them all. It's, God made him that way. It's a beautiful thing. So, but, but I watched this amazing thing happen. I do it every time. I, I'm, I'm struck by this. Andrew spoke some words. Let's use Emily. Andrew spoke some words over Emily. And he created in her life a marriage relationship with Jeremy. They accepted those words. But Andrew had to speak them over their lives. And when he did, it took him a few seconds to speak these words. He created a brand new lifelong relationship through that word. And they live out that marriage that took place through that word at one day in, in, in a few seconds. They live that out over a course of a whole lifetime. And every day they come back to the reality of that first word that brought them into relationship. They may not do it consciously, but that's what it's all about. It's expressing over a lifetime what happened in that moment as, as God's word proclaimed them one. And every day they do that, it honors that marriage that was created by that word that Andrew spoke of them. It's the most amazing thing. Some guy just comes over to you and you're married forever to that person. I mean, it's just the most powerful things in this world happen through the proclamation of a word. The world is created. Marriages are created 
new creatures are created when the word is spoken over a life. God spoke his word in the gospel over you. And you accepted it. And through that, he created a living relationship with you and Jesus Christ. But you live out that relationship one day at a time over the course of a life. And every day you do, it honors that relationship. It expresses that relationship that was created in the instant by the word of God. And so what I'm getting at is that, I hope I can make this clear. What, what I'm getting at is that the center, I believe, the center of abiding in what we were brought into is this idea that we're going to per- persevere in holding on to the gospel. That we're going to continue to hold on to all that Jesus is for us in the gospel as both Savior and as both Lord. And we see this so clearly in the entire New Testament, New Testament that continuing persevering in the gospel of Jesus Christ is essential to not only experiencing the eternal life God's giving us, but to authenticating that we do have eternal life in Christ Jesus. That continuing, remaining in Christ, remaining in his gospel is the proof that we are in his gospel to begin with. We see this in 1 Colossians 3, or in Colossians 3, rather, where Paul says, speaking of the Father, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. We see it illustrated in the experience, the negative experience of the church in Galatians 3 as Paul rebukes them for letting go of the gospel. And we see what happens to them as they let go of the gospel. In Galatians 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That's shorthand for the gospel. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you not trying to finish by means of the flesh? See, we see that they believe the gospel. They were grafted in the vine. And the life of the vine in the person of the Holy Spirit began to flow through their life. And then they began to leave the gospel. And that life in the vine began to be stolen away from them. Another aspect, as we said, about remaining in Christ is the way in John's gospel it authenticates. It separates true disciples from false disciples. When the temptation of greed comes, Judas does not remain with Jesus. He runs to the, the fleshly desire of his heart and he gives himself fully to that. And when persecution comes to Peter, he's tempted as well to not remain in Christ. But Christ comes and says, Peter, I'm not letting you go. I'm going to sustain you. I chose you. 
In fact, Jesus will explicitly tell the disciples that all these words he's given them, the, the encouragements, the warnings, they're designed, we'll see this in 16.1 next week, they're designed to keep them from falling away. Because true disciples stay. True disciples continue in the truth of Jesus Christ. True disciples remain in the gospel. Hebrews 3 puts it this way. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. We have, past tense, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold, future tense, our original conviction firmly to the end. And what's the conviction? The conviction is that the gospel is true, that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is our savior, and that through faith in him, we're able to follow him as our savior and our Lord. In each of these cases that I've read to you, the explicit or implicit command is remain, continue, continue, particularly in the truth of who Jesus is and all he is for you. As Savior and Lord. And so I, I, I put these two questions together. What's the gospel got to do with the, the abiding metaphor? And, and what does that mean for us in terms of abiding? To kind of create this definition of, of what it means to abide. Because I don't, I think one of my like nagging fears is that you guys will leave this, you know, this essentially now four week series we've done on this metaphor. And just be, I'm not sure what abiding means. It, it's, it's, you know, just a pretty poetic term, but it's a lot of metaphor. It's a lot. It's hard to grasp, hard to understand. I don't think that's the best design for the preaching of God's word to God's people for a month. So, so he, here's what I'm bringing to you guys. That to abide, to remain in Christ, is essentially to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Continually. To, to abide is to continue, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, to live for him as you depend on him and to be able to do so, to see him as your savior, to say, this is a call to believe in this moment now, to abide in this moment, that you are again safe because of the blood of Christ. And to fight to keep believing that throughout your day, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, It's a call to believe moment by moment that when you were saved by the blood of Christ, he brought you into a relationship with him as your Lord. And that he has what you need through his Holy Spirit to keep following him, to keep trusting him, to keep seeking him. It is to believe that he is not only your Lord, but that he has what you need in his power, in his spirit, so that you can keep following him and keep depending on him. It's a call to not be fooled that you can give up on following Jesus and believe that you will be eternally safe. It's a call to warn and exhort each other at every opportunity to stay in the fight, to serve Jesus, to feed on the good news. That his grace is sufficient for every sin and every weakness. And his strength is sufficient for every duty, every act of love that we're called to. Now, this kind of abiding will express itself in many ways that are just not dramatic. You know, we, we, we're all looking for that 
mountaintop high that lasts forever. And, and, and so much of life, I've used this phrase, so much of life is just, it is a lawn you mow. It is not a tree you chop down. So much of life is just going over the same things and the same faithfulness, as one writer calls it, a long obedience in the same direction. That's, that's, that's what discipleship is, a long obedience in the same direction. It's not always dramatic. It's not usually dramatic for us in America at this point. It's fighting for a faithful devotional life to stay close to his word, even when it's hard. And, and, and it'll, it'll express itself, this abiding, in non-dramatic ways that are beautiful. We find ourselves abiding in Christ, and so we find ourselves apologizing to our children. We find ourselves crying out to God for the power to forgive our husband or our wife once again. We find ourselves mowing the lawn and taking out the trash when we said we would. Or doing the dishes when we weren't expected to just because we're trying to live for our husband or trying to live for the Lord by laying down our life for our spouse. We find ourselves giving our money away to missions, to the poor, to the church. Instead of holding it all in our bank account because we're putting our trust in manna instead of God. And then it can be harder. It can be expressed in not being ashamed of Jesus when somebody at work asks you to look at pornography. It can be expressed in pulling out of a conversation that's turning into gossip, but doing it in a gracious, non-self-righteous way. It can be expressed in not posting things on Facebook that are just going to hurt some people, but leave them with no pathway to grace. Other times, it's even harder. Fighting for faith through cancer. Fighting for faith through a failing marriage. Through losing a friend who thinks you're a bigot because you believe what the Bible says about sexual immorality. But, but whether it's dramatic or not dramatic, the, the foundation of all that fruit from abiding is this moment by moment trust in Jesus as your Savior. And this moment by moment following Him as your Lord depending on his power to do so. You may not buy this definition of abiding, but don't leave here wondering what I think it is as a pastor here. Please ask me if you're still confused. This is one of the most majestic, powerful, meaningful metaphors in Scripture, and and I want us to understand it. The last question I want to address this morning is, that I don't know that we've really explored very well, is, is what is this connection we see in this metaphor, particularly in verses 7 and 8, and then repeated up in verse 16, this amazing connection between God's word abiding in us, prayer, and bearing fruit for God. I think we've, we've driven by this a little bit too fast. So I'm going to read those portions right now, and then we'll, we'll dig into those a little bit. Verse 7, If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. By this my father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16 and 17. You did not choose me. I chose you. And appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you, 
so that you will love one another. In both these passages, you see these words or these commands given. We see these prayers guaranteed. And we see this fruit produced. You see these commands given, these prayers guaranteed, and fruit produced. That's what's common to both of these sections. But let's look down at 7 and 8. In 7 and 8, we see this condition. If you abide in me and my words in you, then, then comes this promise. Then you ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So let's look at the condition. If you abide in me, and we've talked about that this morning. It's been our whole first half of the message. Remembering our definition, we keep trusting in Jesus as our Savior, acknowledging him as our Lord, and and trusting him for the strength to follow him. So if, if that's where you are, if that's where you're living, then let my words remain in you. Something different. It struck me, you know, abiding in Christ is in this passage implicitly differentiated from letting his words remain in us. I mean, they're related, but they're not the same thing. Or else why would he say, abide in me? And let my words abide in you. Right? Did you see that? He, say, he didn't say abide in me and then ask whatever you wish. He said abide in me and then let my words abide in you. These are the things that drive me crazy after I preach a message. I'm like, why didn't I? Now that's there because there's a distinction. Why did he? He would not. I'm like, I think I glossed over that. So here I am. Andrew gets sick and I get a chance to obsess in front of everyone. Okay. Or preach it. That's a better word. Now, this term, my words, this term for words, where he says, my words remain or abide in you. This term for words is different than the logos of verse 3, which we, look, which we looked at earlier, that fundamental truth of the gospel. Th- this word is rhema. That's where we get the word rhema. It's ramata. But it, it's, it, it's, it has more to do with, with I mean, it, you can see it in the English. In verse 3, he said, my word, you're clean by my word, singular. And here he says, my words, plural. And that's pretty close to what's going on here. As opposed to this just comprehensive message of Jesus Christ. This is his words. These are his commands. These are his ordinances. These are all the things that he said throughout his life. And that he will say through the apostles and other letters. It's the whole catalog of what Jesus wants us to be and do and know. It's not opposed to the gospel. But it's, it's what all that flows from the gospel. All the truths and the commandments of Jesus and all his apostles. So I, I essentially just believe what Jesus is saying. Okay, abide in me. I saved you. Hold on to that hope. I'm with you to help you follow me. Abide in me. Continue to believe that. Continue to fight for that. And then know me through my words. Know me well through my words. Let my words, my actual words, I came down here to spend a few years talking to you and, and giving my apostles my words to give you. Those are gold. You know, the word of God, it's holy, but can it kind of function and maybe is not this, this glamorous thing that we can feel like it, the experience of God should be or, or, or religious explosion of feeling? It's, it's, it's the Bible, you know, we, Isaiah and me joke, you know, kind of joked about it. What are we doing today? We're just going to talk about the Bible. But have you ever thought about the miracle of words? Just the miracle of words. I make these sounds come out of my mouth. I mean, they're just noises. Like, 
unless you know English, they're just noises. You know, that's what they sound like. They just sound like noises. And somehow, you hear those noises, and this miracle takes place. Somehow, your invisible soul, through your physical ears and your brain matter, translates these noises into ideas. That your invisible soul processes as ideas that, that are true or false, that are funny or sad, that are boring or stimulating. But they're just noises, right? I and mean, we get that when we're, when we're with someone whose language we don't understand. It just sounds like noise. But, but through those noises, we know people. We know their invisible soul. Our invisible soul gets to know their invisible soul. It is a miracle. Language is a miracle. And this is a double miracle. Because it's the noises from God's soul. From the creator's soul to our soul. So that we might know him precisely. Not vaguely. There's this idea that that mystery and not quite knowing everything is, is just, that's where it's at, you know, in, in our age. We're... But listen, I, there is no greater path to intimacy than through words. Words that allow me to know someone's soul. I, Christianity is fundamentally a faith of, of words that are precise that can be understood. I'm not saying that's all we have to do is listen and learn words. But at the foundation, it's truth. And, and I know there are religious traditions that consider this not ma- magical, mystical, or exciting enough. We increasingly live in an age where images and information as stimulation and, and the right of self-interpretation, it means whatever you think it means. We live in that age right now more and more. But Christ brings us precise words about himself because he wants us to know him. And when the words come from Jesus Christ, when they are treasured and when they are savored, those words turn into intimacy. So Jesus says, let my words abide in you. Know me through this miracle I gave you. Know me through my words, who I am. And then he makes this shocking promise. Ask, knowing who I am and abiding in me as your Lord and Savior, and then knowing precisely who I am, ask me, and I'll do it for you. Whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Is he bluffing? We all know unanswered prayer. We all know prayers for healing that didn't happen or Prayers for understanding something we're still confused about. Or... I don't think he's bluffing. And I'll, I'll try to explain why. First is, I think Jesus is saying what John himself will say years later. John's letters are amazing because it's almost as if this whole upper room discourse just bounced around in his mind and heart for the rest of his life. When you read John's letters, you can hear the echoes of Jesus' words on this very night through all his letters. But this is what John says in in one of his letters that echoes what Jesus is saying here. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have of him. James, the apostle, says it negatively. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. John says his will. Jesus says my words. Pray out of my heart. James says, no, you're praying out of your passions. And so you're not being heard. In Matthew, Jesus gives the promise this way. Listen carefully to these words because this is a classically mis a twisted and misunderstood passage. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Is he bluffing? That feels tempting to just stand in awe but it also feels suspiciously vulnerable to are you do you really do this have you really done this i think the problem is people forget the first four words of that passage and that his first four words align exactly with what first john and james four say have faith in god not faith in your faith Some people use this verse to tell us that if we only believed, we can name it and claim it, and God will have to give it. Whether it be riches or perfect health, they ignore these first four words. But all these passages imply that that knowing God, knowing his heart, knowing his will is the pathway to answered prayer. And how do we get that? We get that through knowing his word. And we get that through asking out of a heart. That is for God and trusting in God. And that's why when you put these truths together, that's why Jesus starts verse 7 by saying, Abide in me, have the posture that I am your Savior and Lord, and that by my power you can follow me. Have that posture. Number two, my words, let them abide in you. Know who I am. Know precisely who I have offered myself to you to be. Know what I value. Know what I'm after in this world. Know what I want. Part three, ask away. You're submitting and trusting me as Savior. You are intelligently understanding my heart. Now, disciple, I want to do amazing, glorifying things in your life. Ask me. When you ask, knowing my words, abiding in me as your Savior, by my power, following me as Lord, then you will be working with me and not against me. You will be my prayer weapon instead of using me for your own agenda. When you approach me like this, I'm going to answer you. And I have seen this again and again in my life. You know, there are prayers I'm waiting for. There are times where God says no. But I've seen often 
how God comes through with this promise to me. I, I have come to God with what feels like impossible condemnation, impossible anger, impossible confusion, and impossible fear. But when I go to his word and I use it to fight, to cry out to him for things that I know that he wants out of my life, and I keep praying, he brings hope. He brings love. He brings wisdom. He brings a selfless courage that I just do not have. The other day, this week, I, I, it, it, it just was in my heart to pray for someone to talk about him with that didn't know him. I just prayed that on Monday or Tuesday. I just said, God, you know, I just want to talk to somebody today about you that needs you. That very evening, I found myself sitting besides an air conditioner repairman. Our AC broke down in our upstairs, completely done and over. And I sat there for hours talking to this guy who was so discouraged about church because of all these faithless pastors he'd seen growing up in his life. But he didn't want to give up on God. But he just poured out his soul to me. I just was like, okay, Lord, I guess I'll, I'll try to ask that one more often. You seem to be interested in answering that prayer. Listen, the devil will try to talk you out of this. If, if he can keep you from seeing your need for prayer or believing that you have hope through prayer, if he can keep you feeling self-sufficient and not going to God or keep you hopeless in condemnation and not going to God, he will do real damage. Over the last 16 hours, he's been telling me that God will not help me with this message. <laughs> But as I've studied and seen God's word and seen God's promises, I have asked and I have received renewed faith that he can work through this leaky vessel, that I'm safe in his blood, that I'm covered by his mercy, that it's not my perfection, it's his perfection, that I can follow by his power, even in stumbling. And then see what Jesus says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then in, in the last passage, I chose you, Jesus says, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus Christ has a mission for you, disciple, to be a fruit bearer. And we do this as we abide in him. We continue moment by moment, hour, day by day to trust him as our savior who covers us with his blood. And we acknowledge him as our Lord who has the right over all our life and depending on his spirit to follow. That's abiding. And then as we immerse our soul in his word, in his truth, we intelligently, we ask him for the things that we know through his word are on his heart to give us. And he gives it and he brings fruit out of our lives. And then we say, wow, God, you're real. Praise the Lord, you're real. You're not just a figment of my imagination. You are glorious and you're at work. So, brothers and sisters, let's abide in the vine. Let's let his words remain in us. And let's ask him. And tell each other the stories of him meeting us and bearing fruit in our lives. To his glory. Amen. Amen.